Hello and welcome to Joe Talks Comics. I'm your host, Joe Loves Comics, and this is the podcast where I talk with friends about the comics they've been really enjoying lately, plus occasional solo episodes and creator interviews. This episode and this week, if you remember the best of 2022 episodes from the end of December, maybe if you listened to those and enjoyed those, and if you haven't listened to those, make sure to go back and check them out. They're pretty long, extensive listens, but... I think they're worth it because we covered a lot of material and I'm really proud of them. I, I mentioned all of that because on this very special interview with Kelly Thompson and Meredith McLaren of Black Cloak, I was joined by Mighty Lee's comics from those best of episodes and just my friend in general. And additionally, I also got him to join me on this intro. Hello. Thanks again for having me, man. I- is so stoked to be a part of this uh, creator chit chat, especially because uh, how much I just absolutely fell in love with Black Cloak and uh, how responsive both Kelly and Meredith were in my review posts, and then being so quick and responsive to the idea of doing an interview with us. Um, I, I I was very very excited. It's been something I've been looking forward to since I sent the email out to initiate things. So yeah, we went on for almost two hours. So. It was a very lengthy and extensive and just sort of like thought-provoking and wide-ranging discussion, I think is what I'm trying to say. I don't like we covered a lot of bases. And again, it's something that as an episode I'm proud of. And yeah, I, I, I'm looking forward for you getting to listen to it in a moment for sure. Yeah, being my first time getting this opportunity to interview creators um, in like an actual interview setting versus just, you know, like some kind of uh, base level communications on social media and stuff like that. Uh, it was it was an awesome opportunity, and Kelly and Meredith were were both so sweet and um, so thoughtful with all their responses. Um, I, I I couldn't have been happier with how this interview went. Um, it it was a true joy to get a chance to meet and talk with both of them about this book and the cool things that they've got in store and the cool things they've already managed to pull off in just the now, today, I believe, is going to be release day of issue two. Um, just these first two issues alone have been such a thrill. Um, yeah, and I, I hope that uh, if you haven't already checked out Black Cloak, that maybe this interview will uh, nudge you towards doing so, because I think it's a really cool book um, of the new books in 2023. It's one that I'm definitely most excited to be following. Yeah, and... We, we touched on some details to do with the, the world and the comic, but nothing massively spoilery about the plot or anything. So if you haven't checked out the first issue and the current day, the current day, the the issue two, like Mighty Lee said, I'm planning to release this on the, the day issue two has come out, hopefully. So you can go check those out. We would recommend it. But I, I, I wouldn't say, hopefully, at least, you're going to be spoiled by anything if you choose to listen to this interview before you manage to catch up on those issues. I know it's something that hopefully that they might, or still might have copies of issue one and maybe issue two if they bought them already there off the shelf. But, and I know this is something that always gets highlighted in the industry with creators and it's one of the main things that everyone sort of notes and highlights is just making sure to order your comics and making sure to support them in any way you can. Uh, I know it's not always easy, but it's really, there's a couple of points in this interview where 
we highlight about the importance of that. It really hits home, I guess, I'm trying to say, when, especially with an image book, when it's all like fully financed um, by the creators, like beyond the Substack grant in this case, but when to have that financial backing to do any more, like maybe a second arc or beyond, it, it really does need your support. And so, yeah, make sure to go order it with your LCS or pre-order the upcoming issues if you're at all interested or you've enjoyed it so far or, yeah, I don't, I don't know. There's much else I want to add. Yeah, I was just gonna say, probably uh, give them a quick rundown in the event that this is your introduction to what Black Cloak is. Um, this series is a Blade Runner style mixes with saga esque drama in a delectable fantasy and sci fi blend. As two Black Cloaks try to solve the murder of a beloved prince in Kiros, the last city in the known world, before his murder tips the city into war, and. Uh, I don't know, if that doesn't sell you on it, I don't know what will. Hopefully this interview will, um, as we really dive into some of those influences. And uh, that bold assertion of being Saga-esque, we get into that pretty early on. So uh, without further ado, I say, uh, let's get into it. So, Kelly and Meredith, I just wanted to welcome you to the podcast. It's super exciting to have you here. I, I know me and Mightily, we both read Black Cloak and we really enjoyed it. So we're looking forward to this conversation. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much. I saw some, I saw you guys talking about it online. Very kind things you said. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, so, it's a, um, absolutely amazing book. It's um, something that uh, I, I had the chance to read right before FOC cut off and uh, had, you know, been slimming my list down, but I I feel like this book in particular spawned a, a surge of comic creators on Twitter that were not just promoting their own books, but really shouting out other creators' books. And I feel like I saw so many people talking about this book. So I, I finally read the early review I had, and I was like, oh gosh, I have to get this. I have to get this, and I have to tell people to order, order this book before it's too late. Um, and it was oh, really hard you. to hold off reading the second and third issue until <laughs> Well, thank you. That means a lot. And it, honestly, it's really good to hear the perspective of someone else because, you know, when you're out promoting a book, like no matter how much you love it, you get really sick of like, because, you know, you feel like you're this nightmare person who can only talk about one thing. And, yeah. you know, you get really inside your head. I mean, you know, it's a little bit like running a Kickstarter or anything else like that where, you know, you have to keep talking about it because the engagement, like to get it up and to make sure people see it. And, you know, it's like it, it disappears from your feed almost instantly after you say something about it. So you have to go back, but it can feel really exhausting and it can feel really hard to know, you know, what's really getting through and what's just noise because your perspective is so screw skewed, you know. So it's great to hear that you felt like a lot of people were talking about it. And that's part of what uh, it, that that makes me feel better about our relentless Pokemon-ness talking yeah. about the book. Like, oh, it worked. Great. <laughs> I have to say so. I mean, even when I brought it up to my boss, he he had already read the solicitation, and he's not usually one to read the early reviews for the shop. He lets me go through all that oh, and nice. tell him what's good. But uh, um, he he had an eye on it because we're, uh, we're big fans of Saga, and to have Saga asking any solicitation is going to catch our eye. But... Um, I know I've been looking to read more of your work, Kelly, after the little bit I got to dip into last year, finally catching up on, um, you know, Hawkeye, believe it or not, um, <laughs> which was just an absolute blast to finally get to dip into that character after meeting uh, Kate in the show. 
Um, so I was really excited to check this out. And uh, everyone at the shop I work at came back really excited to talk about it. And uh, yeah. That's awesome. That Thank is. you so Thank much. You. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, I mean, you know, they want you to, when you're working with any kind of company, including image, you know, they want you to come up with comparables for your book, sort of like being in real estate. What's a comparable, right? <laughs> um, and so you sort of dread saying saga esque, like, oh yeah, let's just compare ourselves to like one of the best, <laughs> one of the best, <laughs> one of the yeah. best, most famous, most successful Especially. yeah, in, in the comic of all time. Um, you know, and no, no shade on saga, which we obviously <laughs> love. But yeah, it's a little it's a little dangerous to compare yourself to that. Um, I think it it is because of the art styles being sort of really special and sort of not typical, sort of atypical, and mm. the character and world creation. It, it just felt like you know the closest we could get that that was something we really admired, but that also had some crossover elements. You know? Yeah, I I remember early on when we were trying to figure out how to promote the book, we are like, there's really nothing else that we, we can find that's <laughs> the right fit for it. Like that's the closest one. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, is there any way to get out of trying to compare ourselves to Saga? Does anyone have any ideas? <laughs> but, Anything uh, at all, any other books. I, I have to say though, like, even though that feels bold and makes me feel a little nervous, uh, the feedback has been, so positive so far i mean i guess people who threw the book down in anger and were like this isn't like saga i, I guess those people probably didn't reach out to us <laughs> but a lot of people <laughs> yeah, that, do, that, that do love saga had reached out and 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 were really positive and 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 lovely about it which you know makes you feel great it makes you feel like maybe comparing yourself to saga wasn't the worst mistake of your life <laughs> <laughs> As bold yeah. of an assertion as it is to put out there, I, you know, you're right on that. I, I don't know that there's another comic out there that has the same right to say saga esque as Black Cloak does. Well, thank you. That's yeah. incredible praise. Um, I, it also makes me a little curious, though. It's funny because we did have so much trouble with comparables. It's sort of retroactively. I mean, you know, I didn't. I never make anything with an eye on like, oh, that's going to be a hit because um, I'm just not that smart. I, I, I can't, you know, I can't, I can't predict anything that well. I'm not that like into the zeitgeist enough. And honestly, if you're trying to chase a zeitgeist, you're too late anyway, I think. So especially with how long comics take to make. But um, I do think that it, it struck me as a little bit odd that we did struggle to come up with comparables and it made me think, why aren't there sort of more books like this out there? Like when we were, when people were asking me like, Oh, why did you sort of put these, this sci-fi and this fantasy and this police procedural together? Like what made you do that? And I'm like, well, it's sort of all my favorite things. So I, I just want them all to play together, but I sort of wonder why we don't have more sagas out there. Yeah. I you mean, think it's that so it would... the runaway hit, right? Yeah. <sighs> yeah. It is always interesting to see those stories, which from the first issue are like like you've I've heard you sort of talk about in previous interviews about how we're sort of just dropped in this world where we're like immersed by all of the world building and apart from maybe the first page, there's nothing really that's like expository. It's all very just sort of dropped in with like casual references between like dialogue and characters, and I find it quite cool and satisfying in the first couple of issues how they just sort of mention things. 
and then you're not entirely sure what that is but then you sort of gradually find out and it's like gradually unravels and that was quite a fun experience I'm glad. I'm glad. I think that we've heard a lot of that so far. And mm. I'm really, I mean, it makes sense because people who like the book are asking us to come talk about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'm sure there, I'm sure there are some people out there who are not so into it, but it, it does tend to be my preference for world building to like, not sort of overdo it. Like mm. to me, there are a lot of little clues and little weird things that make you go, Oh, that's not quite our world or whatever. Like there's a lot of that built into it. And some of it will be made perfectly clear. The, the parts that are important and the other parts are like, maybe that's something we explore later, but that isn't necessarily germane to the plot, but is germane to just the general world building. Right. But uh, it's been really fun to play with that. Like every once in a while, I catch something I did and I'm like, oh, I feel like we could have done that a little better world building wise, like mostly dialogue stuff where I could have like tweaked words a little bit more. But you also really want to be careful because it can become mm -hmm. overwhelming, especially when you're dealing with a whole new world and a police procedural. So I do think there's a really fine balance to how much is too much and people are going to be frustrated and feel like they're missing pieces and how much is a nice tease of, Oh, I wonder what that's about. Like it's a very tight edge there, I think. Uh, and I think you guys walk that edge very, very well, honestly, because like, like Joe mentions, there's not a lot of expository world building done in this series. It's all very much. Um, and something I was talking about with Joe right before you guys joined in is most of the reviews I'm seeing all state in some way or another that this world feels lived in. And when yeah. you look at that fact that, again, there's not this whole long ago in the world of Kiros, great, you know, it doesn't really break it down and, you know, talk your ear off the whole time to overwhelm you. You get these bits and pieces and um, the, these glimpses at the world that's been, you know, put before you, but it, it's not like forcing it down your throat like you're in history class. Um, and I yeah, think yeah. that. It, it, it really does. I, I can only imagine it's got to be like a tightrope. Um, but it, it brings into one of my questions, actually, because one of the things that always fascinates me with, I feel fantasy especially, but also sci-fi stories, um, is just the depth of the world building. I mean, you're typically setting up something that is meant to be not this, you know, it's not just New York City again, none of that stuff. But, you know, be it geographic, political, economic, you know, historical, any of that stuff. Um, whenever you guys were developing Black Cloak, which facet of the world building did you guys feel maybe came the most naturally to? For me, it's probably the class stuff. Um, just because any kind of race analogy is still there in the sense that you're talking about different creatures more than skin colors or whatever you're talking about creatures who have whole different dialects and cultures and everything. And so that's sort of the the analogy of race becomes more about that. Um, but the class stuff is still pretty direct to our world, I think. I mean, the haves and the have-nots is pretty simple no matter what world you put it in, right? Um, so I feel like that one comes as far as building because you, you just don't have to think that much about that. People have things and they have the power and they have the money and they have their boots on everyone else and then there's everyone else, you know? Um, oh yeah, uh, and that does. Uh, it's one of the things that stands out to me about this book that really uh, caught my attention is I I'm really drawn to these class struggle stories in this story. It is very evident, even if you know you're not necessarily dealing with um, race directly, whether it be 
someone having disdain for mermaids that we see yeah. come mm-hmm. up and you yeah. know, any of these different things. That's one of the things I think is so fun. I mean, and you know, we, we talk saga, you think, okay, well, where are these other stories that have these um, crazy outlandish character designs with, you know, TV heads where there's an entire <laughs> race of people with different size, like TV heads and people are like openly racist against them. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and, and vice versa. It's something that it sometimes can be presented comedically. And um, I think you guys have done an interesting, uh, well, a good job of really building that into the dialogue as we see um, Phaedra and um, Pax go through and, you know, start to start their investigation and interact with different people in different areas. Um, you know, the scene comes to mind at the, at like, hotel uh, bar um, where they're all kind of reluctant to be talking to black cloaks. And you, you really see the kind of thing that's like, look, all sorts of people come in here and most of them don't want to be caught coming in here, but we all know who comes in. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I just think because there's so much going on, that world building, the police procedural, like it's in our benefit to lean on ideas that are already familiar to people, issues that are already familiar to me, people, and then just to subvert them to our own needs. And then like, that's what I'm talking about with the world building as just like, people just naturally understand that as long as we give them the context clues for what's going on here, they can say, oh, I, I understand that because that happens in my world. So this is just this world's version of that, which I feel like is a real sort of crutch to allow you to get through it without all that exposition telling you exactly what you're supposed to be seeing or feeling. But I mean, I think the real key here is Meredith in the sense that I could never take that approach to the story with that paired back dialogue and no narrative. If I didn't have like complete trust in her ability to tell that story visually when we are not going to be able to have that language there to help us and to build those worlds and create those layers that are so interesting and that feel so lived in. I couldn't have done it without someone with her ability, but also just someone I really trust and like know can do that, like a real partner. Thank you. <laughs> Say I'm so flattered. <laughs> well, I just think it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it sounds, it, I don't know. I just felt like I was sounding like really, really clever for not overwriting, but <laughs> no, that no. only works. That only works if I have a partner like Meredith, you know? Yeah. And I'm, I'm always fonder of story. It, it is such a tight line to walk, but it's like, if you can help the audience come to a conclusion on their own, like yes. if they yes. figure it out before you actually spell it out for them, like that's yes. right. Yeah. So awesome. <laughs> And I do feel like there's a little bit of that that I feel like gets, I don't know, this sounds very old of me to say, so let me date myself. These young kids uh, reading comprehension. No, I don't know. Uh, Context clues. Yeah, I do feel like there's sometimes I see people wanting a comic or any media, really, but I, you know, obviously comics are what we're into, so let's keep it there. Um, that they just want every little thing spelled out for them. You know, I want to know the metaphor by reading it in a caption. I don't want to have, I mean, the whole reason a panel gutter exists is things happen in the gutters. And mm. you're, as a reader, you're supposed to put all of that together. It's, it's part of why comics are so beautiful to me, because... 
of of all of the media except for maybe music <laughs> i think it's the most interpretive in the sense that your you as the reader have a more interactive way of putting the words with the pictures and also what's unsaid like what happens between those sequential gaps and our job is to give you enough that it's a seamless elegant beautiful reading experience but it doesn't mean you don't have to think about it it doesn't mean you should turn your brain off while you're reading it like you're supposed to be engaged with it the same way we're engaged with it you know what i mean Definitely. and i think i think that's hard to do but i also think it's really rewarding if you can do it and i think for the reader it's more rewarding as well but yeah i mean meredith said it much better in fewer words <laughs> I want people to figure it out before you say it, you know, like it's fun. It's there. fun for everyone that way. Yeah. Yeah. Plus if you can get there in a movie, like emotionally, and I don't mean like, Oh, I know the twist. I mean like, Oh my God, what they're really talking about is this like, wow, that's huge. Like if you can get there like that, that's everything. I mean, uh, Andor is one of the best shows I watched last year. And I feel like it did this incredibly amazing job about talking about rebellion, about revolution, about the cost of those things, about what it does to someone. And they, and they said many of these things, like literally, I'm not saying it was all super subtle, but you know, they never, they never winked and nudged at 2023 America. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm. Like you never felt them yeah. pointing directly at it. But anyone with a brain can look at, there's a speech at one point from a bad empire guy talking about how they've basically broken down these people who used to travel to a religious site. And part of the way they've broken it is not by telling them they can't do it, but just by placing obstacles and temptations in their way to like slowly help them defeat themselves. And if that's not a metaphor for literally what's going on in all our lives, uh, as you know, <laughs> as things continue to break down a yeah, little bit, things becoming you know, increasingly difficult. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I just, so it's like here they've, they've made it a fictional thing on a planet far, far away, but it, it could not speak more to, 2023 planet earth you know than it than it does and i love that but i they never say that you just you just need to be in the material right i've now i've now tied us to saga and andor which are both impossible <laughs> bars so forget <laughs> it <laughs> we aim high <laughs> yeah i mean why not you might as well aim as high as you can i, I know some of my favorite uh comic stories but also as you say stories in general are the ones where there's a really cool premise with like, even if it maybe gets a bit uh, wild, or wild or it's a bit out there, if it's something that has lots of like interesting characters and interesting plot details, but at the heart of it, if it's got a nice emotional, like, uh, like, like realism to it, if it, if I can like feel the emotional stakes and as you sort of said, and as you sort of talked about, if it sort of speaks to me and as long as I can, I emotionally resonate with it then I think that's something really special when it comes together into something that's also just fun at the end of the day and entertaining to read because it and then it sort of works on multiple levels and it feels uh, like fleshed out and real and as a like my Tilly said earlier like lived in and realistic in some senses agreed mm -hmm. <laughs> sorry <laughs> I have nothing else to say you, I'm, I'm not 
I was waiting to see if Joe had another thing pulling up because otherwise, <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry, you can you can ask one of those questions. I I was just said one thing, Holy. but you can. Yeah, well, this is one of the my ones I'm like personally most interested in as a aspiring writer myself. Uh, and if I if I looked correctly, I believe Black Cloak is your guys' third comic together, right? Yeah, yes. two, well, two creator own, and then we did an arc together on Gem and the Hologram. Thank you. I was looking online, and I was like, I'm seeing these names coincide twice for <laughs> Heart in a Box and Enter the Stingers, but I didn't see the gym, so awesome. Yeah, yeah. That was the, yeah, that was mm-hmm. the arc title. Perfect. Well, with that, um, you kind of mentioned what it's like being back together on a project a little bit and having that trust and familiarity with who you're working with. Um, but I was kind of curious, what are some of the things that you feel you both learned from working together on past projects that are maybe now helping in developing Black Cloak, whether it be, you know, uh, are you learning from each other, learning together at, through, you know, things gone right, things gone wrong, uh, anything you think um, might might have been really helpful in your work developing Black Cloak. Now? I mean, if I can just say, uh, I know Hard in a Box uh, depended so heavily on color uh keys that i that definitely like move uh, move me along on on where i am now as far as how i can convey things with my uh, color schemes so (laughs) that's that's an incredibly positive way to look at it this is why meredith is amazing uh honestly the color thing I was afraid she might say no to doing Black Cloak because of the coloring, because the coloring on Heart in a Box had been so tricky. And we had entered into it together. I can't remember which one of us had the idea, but the other one thought it was a great idea. Yeah. Um, and it still <laughs> and it was. It was. It's it was a good idea. It, it was the it right was move. It was still a good idea, and it was the right thing. But basically, without boring everyone there's a there's a story element there's a plot element where the character basically gets desaturated early on um and then slowly warms up back to full color by the end and it's a narrative device it's very beautiful it was incredibly difficult I mean, you can imagine because we're like, well, is she really more colorful than 20 pages? Like, are we? And then, you know, because it also Uh. just really and this comes down to um, a a lot of my lack of knowledge of coloring, like, you know, coloring isn't just coloring things in the colors they are. It's the lighting and the tone and the scene and how all of those lightings and colors affect the actual color of an object. Right. So it was incredibly complicated for her to both edge those colors up consistently and slowly as we went along, but also, you know, Oh, Hey, this happens at sunset. And so the colors look like this. It was very complicated. Uh, It's beautiful, but it was, it was so much work for Meredith. It was so hard. It was was, so hard. Well, (laughs) I mean, it's one of those things where hearing it it helped you is great. Yeah. and it's it's kind of um, I'm I want to say it's kind of like birth where you you don't remember how hard it was afterwards. <laughs> that might be an unfair characterization, one way or the other. Well, they say that's why people like they say you for, it's so intense you forget, and that's why women will have a second kid after the first. <laughs> Brian, that's, 
That's why you signed on for Black Cloak. You completely forgot about the saturation yeah. misery. And now here you are. Well, I, I love that you bring up the color because one of the things that I think stands out the most for me in the art is exactly that. It's the, the, the colors and specifically um, within the, both of the first two issues, because uh, by the time this episode comes out, issue two should be on stands. Um, in the flashback sequences, what you do with the color in those shots Mm. I, I I don't have words for what it does to me, Meredith. But Aww. it really, really like, I you know I was I was trying to talk to Joe about this. Um, it's like this. There's this defined fluidity to some of mm. your work in this series is the best that I could find to describe it. But I feel like you're right, and like there, there's got to be some c- capturing these emotions because I'm looking in the in the first issue. Um, as she's, you know, facing the gates and she's remembering what it's like being a little kid here. Um, and you've got this soft pink and blue paired together and it's just absolutely gorgeous. And then, um, the one that really wiped me away, it was an issue two, which I just read the other day, which was, um, another flashback with Phaedra and Frail. And this one is all in like a turquoise tone and, I, I don't know if you ha- have anything you can add to like what what about these flashbacks you're doing um, with these colors that makes it so impactful. But uh, every single time I got to one, I was like, okay, I'm. I, it just brings me into the moment really, really strong. And I, I think the color choices for each of these flashbacks is so impactful. Yet, as somebody who doesn't understand how art does what art does, and someone who can't fathom doing what you do on the art side. Um, as, as a writer, I, it, I, I, it's just, it fascinates me. That's all. I think, uh, I, I knew with the flashbacks we needed to like pare down as far as color went. Um, there might've been an element early on where it was a little bit rushed too, where I was like, I can't over complicate these, these pages. (laughs) Um, I don't want to take credit for what Meredith's doing because she's great and she's doing what she's doing and those are her choices. But I believe I did have a little influence here because I think I sent her a reference actually from Hawkeye that was Leo Romero and Jordi Belair, which, uh. because, and, and the reason I sent it to her, I didn't want her to ape it, obviously, but... I, a lot of flashbacks, the instinct in flashbacks, a lot of times I see, or at least I have made are to do sepia tone, right? Because that in movies and TV, I feel like is an immediate sort of, oh, okay, we're, we're in the past. We're having a flash or something that's, you know, a memory or whatever. But every time I've asked for it, it's been a mistake. It looks really muddy. It doesn't, it often just obscures the emotion that you're often trying to grab with a flashback. Like here's this core memory or important thing that is important enough that we're going to put it in the flashback. Right. And um, so I sent that and Jordy on, on Hawkeye was one of the first people that ever really nailed a flashback for me. And I don't blame other colorists. I think I always asked for that sepia. But when we were working on that with Jordy, I was like, you know, the sepia thing always goes wrong for me. You know, can you look at it or whatever? And 
I think I sent that reference to Meredith and I was like, listen, you should do what you want to do, but I, there might be something to this, which is a lot of white and then a, and then sort of a monochrome in Hawkeye's case, it was purple. And Meredith not only did that and it really landed in that first one where she used the pinks, but then in this issue, you're right. She used a different color, which I hadn't really expected. Uh, I didn't know she was going to do a different color and it was awesome. Turned out so powerful. Um, There's basically a flashback in every issue um, and they're all really coming together beautifully um, where it's got a lot of white and like a primary color sort of blocking style. It's, It's great. It's great. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think the key with with uh, flashbacks is always the um, there's like a core to them, and everything else has fallen away. To, and that I think that's what comes through in the coloring, the simplified color. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way of putting that. Especially because I mean, just as I'm thinking, it does have this. You know, like you mentioned, you you may have felt like okay, I can't put as much detail into these, but they are kind of these faded memories, and so there's a mm-hmm. little bit of artistry and just the mere nature of like look memories aren't going to be as defined and clear cut yeah. and detailed and you know as all these things and you know they're going to be hued with whatever emotions or feelings we have tied to them and i think that you really capture that with um, like i said both of these flashbacks and, I, and i'm very eager i like i said i i held off on issue three because of when this will release i didn't want to accidentally say anything about an issue that wasn't out yet <laughs> <laughs> but oh my goodness, um, I hate reading digitally, ladies. And you guys have made a book that's like, hard for me to put down. <laughs> oh, that means a lot. That means a lot. You know, I think you you hit on a really interesting thing in the in the flashback coloring, which I I don't know that I thought about consciously, but I think really makes sense for flashbacks in general. And this too um, is that the the um sorry my cat is being crazy uh the uh Uh, we knew someone's would go off (laughs) it was just a matter of time it was only a matter of time um the flashbacks are particularly interesting as sort of someone's perspective which obviously is not always correct but it's how you saw things right so it's like Mm, it can be a skewed pov but also the fading of memory how accurate is it so um, you know, the you, you as a storyteller, you think of the coloring, coloring a flashback differently. It the biggest thing often where you start from is just we want people to know we're in something different. We want to make it clear this is something different that's happening. But I do think you're right that the emotion, the content that's conveyed, all of that, it matters. And I think the the stripped down coloring here is pretty effective, especially when you've got such a beautifully colored book already that's like really sort of subtle tones like not sort of garish superhero tones but also like these incredibly vivid neo-noir vibes to it too you know and yeah, sort and of it, the, the color toning <laughs> meredith also does for the different neighborhoods you know like all that stuff is so uh, yeah. cool yeah and with the sorry with, no, with the flashbacks i was going to i was just going to say you mentioned that they have very like vivid colors and that's definitely something that I noticed in terms of just how vibrant they are and like you've also talked about already about the because they are like memories where like they're not going to be perfect as we've already mentioned but they do have that very dreamlike quality about them which is very cool and it's just cool to see like the contrast between that and the other art and the the whole comic has a very 
like warm and soothing vibrancy to it I've noticed with that the colouring is just quite satisfying to read. Thank you. Yeah. And I, I have it pulled up in front of me, issue two, right where it cuts to the flashback, and it immediately makes me think of not just how impactful the flashbacks are because of how they look within the comic, but where they're placed is so perfect. I mean, the first issue, you have oh, her yeah. returning home to these gates with all these painful memories, yeah. and while we don't know much, we know that she's been exiled. And then she comes out of this memory to immediately be attacked, um, blindsided, only to later realize it's her brother. But um, then with I, I, Joe sent me pictures of this panel in particular, and I don't want to get too deep into it, but you know, she's examining uh, the, the dead body. She notices the arm, and as she's holding this cold, dead arm against her face, you have this bright green tree coming out of the background of an otherwise rather cold morgue room. And then it immediately the next page cuts to this cold, just emotional turquoise and like you say these it it is one of the most impactful parts i think that has come from this series is that simple page turn and i I know that whenever i get to read it again in a physical copy it's going to hit even more because i'm not just scrolling up on my art but yeah i is yeah i i think that flashbacks can really be hit or miss just on their placement alone um now, how, how much intention was uh, put in all the placements, especially if we're going to be seeing flashbacks every issue? It, um, are they all timed just seemingly perfectly like this? Because so far, <laughs> I feel like every single time, it's both of these two times have, have landed so right that, um, yeah, I, I, like you said, I feel like it, they, flashbacks can get messed up a lot. And I think this is an area that you guys have nailed that I see people struggling with flashbacks the most, where... Um, typically I see a flashback or a dream sequence hitting in a moment where it can be jostling and confusing. Um, but here you feel the memory slip in as you look at the last panel before it cuts to the memories. Kelly gets all the credit here. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't want to say I'm a genius. I mean, I do like to say that, but, um, (laughs) but I, I just think that in, in this respect, the narrative really helps us like because of the way we designed it where our lead detective is emotionally connected to this case and like has a secret that we're also interested in as readers it just naturally creates these places where either emotionally or narratively she gets led into those flashbacks you know it's like in that first issue as you said she's back home after we don't know how long it's been since she went top side to see that place where she's not allowed to go right and so she's having this very powerful flashback and then same thing in issue two it's triggered by her thinking about something from her past while she's considering this dead body of a former lover you know so it it really the flashback in three is atypical of the others it i still consider it a flashback especially because we're getting a different art style played with a little bit in three but again it's either a a direct emotional thing like in the first two issues and i would say the one in the fourth issue or it's an emotional combined with the narrative right where she's discovering a clue that's taking her back in time to all this world that she left behind. So, I mean, I think in this, this is a case where the narrative just really helps you because you can sort of work backwards and see 
okay, I'm going to need these emotional goalposts and also these clues, you know? And so you just, it just helps you figure out where to put them. But, you know, Meredith said, that's all me. And that's very kind of her, but you know, the way she leads you in, I mean, I did specifically ask for her to have a really emotional beat, like leaning in her face into this body. And then for us to recreate that note when she comes out too like it was it was true of her in her past and it's true of her now that she used to like to put her hand in this guy's or her head in this guy's big hand because he's sort of a really big guy but um you know it, meredith's the one who makes that emotion feel you know so forlorn so desperate so impactful you know See, and now that you say that, you've got me near tears looking at these pages where you have that final corner box in both the scene with the corpse and in this last scene panel of the flashback, and she's got her head in his hand. And yeah. meanwhile, the thing that I was taking the most impact from in the flashback myself is how she's kind of hiding her arm from him this whole time. And she's also mm -hmm. simultaneously having just found this thing that he has kind of seemingly kept secret from her on his very arms, which, again, uh, it's a, a, a sensitive topic to, to, to discuss. It's a sensitive topic to think about. And so to portray it in art so elegantly and, um, w w you know, without any of the tropes, um, I didn't feel like there was any shame that was put out there towards this kind of event. It was, um, I, 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 I just, I, I couldn't in this interview without applauding the way you guys handle this moment. It is, it is, um, it is an important moment in this comic, genuinely. And I, I, I like to hold on to important moments uh, to mean things where it really does have a, a impact way further than you would expect a comic to have. But I mean, this is impactful stuff and I'm not somebody who's had, you know, struggles with it, doing it myself, but I've had friends who've struggled with this in the past. And so seeing it and being the person who's like, you know, seeing that arm and it, having those reflections and, you know, it just, it, it cut to my core. And I know that when this issue is, you know, presumably out today, um, as, uh, this drops, um, it is going to touch a lot of people's hearts. Um, and I think you guys are going to get a lot of thank you messages just for those well, I like, four. Pages. I hope so. It's yeah, scary. That means a to lot. deal with. Yeah, it means a lot. And I hope we're doing it sensitively. But, you know, you do worry about these things a little bit. I mean, you know, especially because, you know, in the narrative, yes, it's referring to everything you're talking about, but it's also referring to a clue when it's like, is it just that this these are cuts or this is a very deliberate rubbing out of a symbol. Like, is it both of those things? What is, it? you know, it's a, it's a mystery story, but you know, you always do want to be careful with that stuff because you, even though if, even though it's all in service of the sort of procedural and solving the case, it's very emotional, heady stuff that you want to handle the right way. I, I think this is, I mean, it keeps coming down to this, but it's the kind of thing that would worry me more if I wasn't doing it with Meredith. I just, I just know her, her sensitivity. You know, I know that if she sees something wrong, she's going to, 
call it out and be like, I don't think we're getting this right or something. Like, I just really trust her. And I, I hope she mostly trusts me, which doesn't mean not, that either of us, either of us are never getting it wrong. Like people get it wrong, but like having a collaborator that you trust and that's sort of on the same page about the things you're trying to say, you know, um, is really important to getting it right and to hopefully doing it right so that it moves people and, and doesn't hurt them. You know, but you, you worry about that a little bit. I mean, I don't want, I don't want to upset people, but I do want to talk about real things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's quite honorable at least. Absolutely. And, you know, as, like I said, I, I'm working on what, what is hopefully to be my first comic and it, it handles very, very delicate subject matter and stuff that's very close and personal to me. And I know that at the end of the day, in order for this to become a thing, I'm going to have to find that trust in another person to be able to convey these messages and convey these images for that matter that hold so much impact and meaning to me that I know will also be, you know, triggering and impactful to other people who've had similar experiences. Um, and, you know, I, I think to Middle West, which I read at the beginning of this year, mm, and there's yeah. interviews in the back talking between um, Scotty Young and George Corona, and they talk about the very, very same thing you're talking about there, Kelly. It's that at the end of the day, Scotty has this story about abuse that he's wanting to tell, and he had to trust somebody to be able to convey that story and to be able to work with that kind of content and be sensitive to it and like you said you know finding and trusting Meredith's sensitivity to this kind of thing um I trust you guys with it after seeing this page yet not once at all was I seeing this and have a second guess about ooh, I don't know how I feel about this being included whereas so many other things much smaller things can be included in a comic that makes me think okay is this something they really should be putting in the comic is this something that they have the sensitivity and the maturity to handle you know what where is the um, who gets to say what they can say about these kinds of things? And, you know, it comes down to trusting that, you know, it, it, because it's a trust between you two, but it's also a trust between us, the reader, and you. Um, you know, we're, we're trusting we're putting our, our, our trust into this story and in you guys as creators. And in, in turn, what I'm seeing here is that trust paying off very beautifully in, um, like I say, a moment that I think is going to, no matter how long this series uh, lasts, is going to go down as uh, one of my favorite moments in the series already. This, what, this is, And after this talk, it means that much. You guys have added some more insight to it, and I've had the chance to just stare at it while listening to you guys talk about it. But um, I'm very excited for people to read this. I, I'd say that uh, hopefully you can rest assured come re- release that uh, you'll be seeing messages flooding those inboxes of sheer appreciation and love because uh, that's what I think that this this issue warrants. I felt it was a very tasteful handling of such a such a sensitive topic. Thank you. Yeah, it's. I think you're absolutely right about the the trust not only between writer and uh, artist, but also uh, between creators and audience. Like the one thing I I absolutely do not want to do is like cause uh, a reader upset. You know, like or distress is more appropriate word. I don't want to cause them like undue distress. Yeah. But I think, you know, you're right talking about um, sort of the contract that readers and collaborators enter together. And it's not that dissimilar from what I was talking about earlier when I was talking about the engagement of books requiring you to do the work too. And I think this is 
just an extension of that. It was like, we need you to do the emotional work, you know? And, but to do mm -hmm. that, we got to put you there, you know, we got to put you through the paces. We got to make you care about these people and show them going through real relatable things. And hopefully we talk about it sensitively and it works out, you know, but it's hard. I think when you're in the moment of creating, and especially when you're creating in a vacuum, um, which most creators do, at least for part of your time, you know, it's, it's hard. Like you surround yourself with people that you trust so that you can feel safe in doing that. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of balls to have your eye on, you know, it's mm -hmm. like, are we delivering the detective narrative the right way? Like, are, is it going to be a rewarding mystery for people? Are the emotional beats for the characters landing? And is that going to come together and make sense in the end? Are, are, sort of lessons and ideals and messages and metaphors getting through without being soapboxy and telling everyone exactly what we're trying to say, you know, like all of that is very hard to do and you don't always nail it. You know, you try <laughs> and you, you do your best, but yeah, it's, I mean, I think it's mixed results, how much you really get it or not. And, and it varies from person to person. I mean, the number of people, who reach out on something to tell you like it really moved them or it changed their life or whatever. And then you've got other people who are like, I hated this. Like, I don't understand why people like this, you know, <laughs> who thinks this writing is good. And so, you know, even within the community, it's not like, it's not like everyone will love it. Even if you do everything right, you know, it's like, uh, right. it doesn't, doesn't work that way. <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah. And it, it's one of those things that I think I think you're right. It's uh, you can only do what you do, and then once it's out there, it, it is up to us to do the rest of that work. And uh, the payout for any given reader is going to be different based on what they can tie to it themselves emotionally and what they can take from the art. And um, yeah, so I've, I mean, for what I think it's worth, you guys uh, are, are on the right track uh, with this scene in particular. And something you you had mentioned actually brings up one of my questions. You had mentioned. Uh, whether it could be this potential to get rid of certain markings um, and this scene in particular um, deals closely with the tattoos, which we get um, glimpses and murmurs of uh, Phaedra and Frail's tattoos in these first two issues. Um, and I feel like that's a great time to just see um, uh, what can you tell us about these markings, some of their origins, meanings, and um, how they're viewed by the common folk of Kiros. Cause clearly they, um, I mean, they're, they're markings. Uh, they they have meaning. People identify this light as soon as they find them, um, and uh, seemingly there's reasons to keep them hidden as well. So. I think the reason to keep them hidden is just in Phaedra's case because you know you don't want to be asked about that every day. Like you just want to go about your new life. You don't want everyone going, "Oh shit, you're you used to be a royal. Oh, how's that exile right. going?" You know what I mean? Yeah. Like so for her, that's the reason to keep it up. It's just a practical. Concern. Although mm -hmm. I'm sure there's there's also an emotional component there in the sense that do you want to look at something that reminds you of painful stuff every day? Like maybe you don't. Right. Everyone's a little different. Some people want to indulge in that and some people want to cut that off. Um, I think mm -hmm. the only symbol that I think we can really talk about right now is the one that's scratched out because in the narrative that's specifically called out um, yes. as being basically a symbol about honor. Um, the others, the idea is that you can't know, you can't get these tattoos unless you're a Royal, like they're specially done. 
there's a magical element to having them done. And in Phaedra and Frail's case, it was like they were done when they're like sealed together. So their symbols are the same. Um, well, I mean, they look a little different on their arms, obviously, but they're the same symbols basically executed on their arms. And they chose those symbols together, things that were important to them. That's sort of the idea there. And not that it's a secret because you can see them at any time, but like it's a very like personal decision that you make together or whatever. And the fact that the honor is the one that's scratched out is like a big clue. <laughs> yeah. <I'm not> sure. <laughs> but for now we don't delve into the specifics of the others. So I, I don't know that we should talk about that yeah, yet, but we mustn't give ones, away all our secrets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but if, we'll, but we'll if Meredith, that. if Meredith wants to talk about her ideas behind how she designed them, I didn't really give her any guidance for good mm. or ill. I just sort of was like, I sort of told her what I just told you guys about like the ideas of them. And then okay. I was like, I know, I know tattoos are a pain in the ass. So you do what you need to do. Yeah. <laughs> Let me know. Uh, Let yeah. me know. It was a mix between tattoos are a pain in the ass. And then also uh, symbols that are so like foundational should again, be pretty like simple. I think they should be, it would it doesn't seem right to overcomplicate the imagery right when it's when it's something like honor or trust or uh love or something well and i think for forgive me if i'm wrong but i think some of the idea when we talked about this before when you first like submitted them um we talked about this idea of like that maybe it's from maybe it's based on like an old language like an old Oh, maybe that's yeah. elvish symbols or old elvish language like what yeah like, this can come from something and so she just came up with these designs and like that's the one that we were focused on as far as honor and you know just these yeah um, uh, the, yeah definitely like the the simplicity of like cuneiform or something yeah played into it so it was like if it's this ancient language it started out very basic <laughs> Yeah. But then there's also like a little bit of a tribal vibe to them, which I think feels right for this idea of it is tribal, right? It's elves mm. who are committing yeah. to marry each other or whatever. Um, and then other uh, extrapolating out, it can also be other things. But in this case, that's what it was. Royal children sort of being betrothed to each other um, and choosing symbols for what's important to them or together what they want to represent or whatever. Um, but yeah, I think that the tribal element I was really excited about because I know that's really, really hard to do <laughs> for an artist. Like uh, I did think like, hopefully because we were just using it as a plot element and it wasn't going to be visible on these characters all the time that like that sort of helps like to Meredith not it, have to do it, it constantly. The fact that Pedro <laughs> has long sleeves. Yes. I, I think uh, every day. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that, and that was a deliberate, that was a deliberate choice, especially because Meredith on our first project, Heart in a Box, Meredith on her own accord gave our main character Emma tattoos, and they were amazing. I loved them. And she came to really regret that. <laughs> That's why this is black. I just didn't have the tools yet, this. Kelly. <laughs> so, yeah. So basically, we're coming in here fixing all our mistakes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah give her tattoos and then long <laughs> It works. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Good to hear. I just need to hear. I mean, listen, sometimes you got to think about the practical stuff. Uh, yeah. 
it's, those are my uh, favorite little details is like little tricks um i see like artists on social media posting about the tiny little things they do that whether it be a shortcut that's you know the regular eye would have no clue what the hell is being done or whatever just those kind of things are like yeah well it's complicated as hell to constantly draw tattoos so they're in long sleeves for a reason and it's like it makes perfect sense I know yeah. I'm always scouring like the internet, uh, other artists seeing how they do tattoos. I'm like, what is your shorthand and can I copy it? <laughs> right. Well, the like you see them on like. Nobody has a shorthand. No, nobody has it. a solid one. <laughs> I feel for the truth. Right. Artists everywhere will be very excited when tattoos go out of vogue everywhere. Uh, but <laughs> oh, I don't think it's going to happen. It's so never like going to happen. I can imagine <laughs> it's not too hard to do it like for like a cover and you're like nailing it once and it's done but to do it on interiors for a work and you're you know you're with these characters for issue after issue after issue um it can be you know i can imagine incredibly taxing and tedious yeah yeah, yeah. well and then plus you'll get so many pages and you're like i forgot the tattoos <laughs> and oh. you'll go back <laughs> yeah i i think yeah. what i remember uh who's the artist on walking dead um Charlie Adler or the yes. guy did it first? Tony, Tony Moore. Moore or Charlie Adler. I just remember one of them in an interview going, you know, uh, I, I, I remember so many pages later that, you know, Rick has only one hand and I'm, and that's so, oh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, resonant with the artist's experience where it's like, you're like, oh, right. They have tattoos and scars and, other defining feature stuff. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty good. That's, that's pretty good. That's really funny, and I feel for y'all. We chose our profession. Yeah. This is our <laughs> life choice. That's yeah. fair. We we definitely had. Um, I was apologizing to my artist on Captain Marvel recently because you know we're doing this huh. big brood brood storyline and like maybe somebody loves to draw brood but that sounds incredibly boring to me and drawing dozens of them let alone hundreds or thousands on a page sounds really really bad and so you know I just, things right I just, yeah but i mean drawing a hundred of them on a page like Oof. here suggests that there's millions you know it's like it's just not a fun task for the artist so i was trying to um I was, I try to keep it really fun in other ways and like give like big moments that, that are maybe more fun to draw. And of course everyone's different. So maybe their favorite thing to draw is brood, but a couple times with both Sergio and Javi, I've been like, I'm sorry. I was like, I kept the brood off all the pages until this page, but you really need to show like, there's a whole planet of brood coming from that. Like we need to understand the stakes here. I was like, I apologize, but here we go. I mean, and I think, a, Yeah. It, it's just a it's just a thing like I it's a little bit like I try to keep it fun all the time because sometimes it's not going to be fun and you know it's the same thing in a script like some pages are a joy to write and sometimes you're like wow why is this so hard to figure this out and I think we had that not with brood but um early on when we were working when we, I would say it was when we were it's I think it was still the first issue, but because that issue was so oversized, it it mm. felt like we were further along in the process where we actually went back and added some a couple pages that we added that were basically pure world building pages like that whole scene when they're leaving the castle with the glass elevator and all of that. And they're sort of talking about 
the problems in that world or whatever. Like that was all an added scene because I was showing the book to my partner and some other people. And they were like, you know, I really love this book, but I don't have a good enough sense of the world. I think you need a couple more like world building moments. And I looked at it again and I was like, yeah, you're right. And so I went back to Meredith and I was like, I think we're, we're doing a great job, but I think we're light here. And in order for it to feel balanced, we got to go in and do that. And like, I felt really bad doing that because that's a big ask when you're yeah. already like in it, you know, that was lots of fun. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I think that's a thing to keep in mind as a writer. You never know really what their favorite thing to do is mm -hmm. unless you ask. But I just think it was one of those things where I was hesitant to ask Meredith and I'm so glad we did. Like not only did she seem to enjoy it, but it's so important, I think, to what we have now and to all of it feeling really well built. And I don't know what the point of this story was, except to say you can't really skimp even in the places you want to. And I, again, I'm not putting that on Meredith. I'm saying I didn't write that scene. I'm like, ah, we don't need it, blah, blah, blah. But it's, sometimes when you go back, it is unbalanced if you don't really look at the whole thing. Kind of, as an artist, it's kind of how I approach backgrounds. Like, I don't know, I, this is always in my head whenever I'm doing a new scene. It's like, you have to have one one good shot in the scene that gives you, like, a nearly complete, like, feeling for what the space is like. And then... Every panel after that could be like little to no background, as long as you've given the reader like this what? one chunk. The guidepost to hang on to it. Yeah, right. I, I think that explains a lot about why you're such a good storyteller, I think, because some people don't get that because they don't want to draw, you know, I don't know, the space station from the outside or like whatever it is. Right. But that's part of it. And it sucks as a writer to say that because it's very easy for me to write panel one, exterior of a space station, night. Space <laughs> and, Armada. And then, and the, and then loca yeah, location oh, tag, boy. space, space, a space station. And then the artist is like at home going, fuck you, right? <laughs> so I get it. I get it. But it all matters, I guess, is what I'm saying. It's the same way. I know I'm not an artist and I never really will be because I just want to draw like the same woman's face over and over again. Like the only thing I'm good at drawing, but Listen, you, some people, you gotta be able to make <laughs> careers out of that. Meredith, you're not going to get us in it. trouble, Meredith. I wasn't going to name drop, but I was about to say the exact same thing. I was like, there's folks <laughs> in this industry, ladies. It's getting personal now. Uh, it is. It is. Uh, we're going to be in, we're going to be blacklisted in a minute. Um, I, but you know what I mean? Like it's, you got to mm, do all the parts, yeah. unfortunately, like to make it a fully comprehensive especially if you're building a new world but you know even if it's new york city you still got to establish that shit so people feel anchored so they know you know and honestly the thing i was talking about before about i want my readers to be thinking and that things happen in the gutters and they need to be helping the story put those pieces together like it's all collaborative together with the reader that's our job right is to give you so you never feel at sea right? You yeah. have all the clues you need. You have the location. You're, you're on solid ground. Now look for clues. Like, let's see, you know? Exactly. So you, uh, go for it, Joe. No, I was just going to say, Kelly, you mentioned your Captain Marvel run briefly, and I know that's approaching almost 50 issues now. Is yeah. there 
any has there been any sort of major takeaways across those that that long run since it started a few years ago? Sort of Meaning, like for me, for, for me, from working on it, you mean? Yeah, I, I just wondered if there's anything in particular that you've sort of maybe learned as a writer. Uh, and and I, mean, I know, yeah, because I know people sort of talk about how uh, work for hire at Marvel is very different from obviously working on your own thing, creator owned. I just wonder if there's anything you learned that you maybe can utilize in something like Black Cloak or any of the other work. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think. Unfortunately, on Captain Marvel, you know, with a long 50 issue run like this, you sort of assume at some point we had a lot of runaway, a lot of runway and we were seeding a lot of stories that we were going to pay off later and stuff. But we never really had the flexibility of that, like to know, Mm. oh, you're going to 50. So plan it out. You know, it was still sort of arc to arc where we had to sort of reinvent the wheel a little bit every time. And that's okay. I think we got to tell some really great stories that maybe I wouldn't have gotten to tell if we hadn't been in that position. Like certainly the weird magical tri- tribunal arc that I just did. Like if I'd been planning out 20 issues at a, at a whack, I never would have thought to do so- a sort of weird offshoot story like that, that I really like, but I don't know. It makes you think about arcs and breaks but the big thing excuse me i've got the hiccups it's perfect for a podcast (laughs) um honestly i think my biggest takeaway from working on captain marvel was that people show up for characters more than anything else right yeah they just you know they're just fanatically attached to them and Mm -hmm. in a way that benefits me and a way that hurts you know because it's hard to break through that to create something that someone loves as much as black widow, you know, like how do you compete with that um, Mm -hmm. as a creator? Or if you're the creator writing black widow, how do you live up to what's come before, but still do something new, you know? Um, I think it's funny that you mentioned how people show up for their, for characters and how big of an impact that is because in particular on both books you mentioned there black widow and captain marvel two of the people i know that have the highest praise for those series i don't know that they're particularly like big fans of either character but they're actually in it for your writing um which is one of the reasons why i was i've been like meaning to check out and get to some back issues of that black widow because i uh I heard it was good, and then just a couple weeks ago, it came to my attention. I was like, oh, that's why I knew Kelly's name. <laughs> one of those things where, like, once I get exposed to a name, I finally start to see it pop up. It's so, like I didn't even realize that you were the one that was writing Captain Marvel until just now because it's, <laughs> it's a book that, that, you know, our subs read. But with it being at issue 40-some-odd, there's not usually wall copies for me to, like, stare at and, like, see the names every time. So, um, <laughs> But, no, I think it's interesting that you, you mentioned people coming for characters when – on those two books in particular, I know people who are very much in it for you rather than the characters. Well, it's nice to hear. I mean, that's certainly my goal. I mean, my whole my whole thing I'm doing out here is I try to put sort of the same level of love into every little thing just because, not because, oh, I'm so dedicated and amazing, but because I know that I'm only as good as the last thing someone's written from me and Mm. um, an issue can change someone's mind and make them a fan forever, or it can turn them off forever. Uh, It takes very little with fans, especially I think in this sort of weird hyper Twitter verse where things get amplified in weird ways. Like 
I am sort of retroactively, I was mad back then, but I've never really talked about it. I was sort of retroactively mad at Marvel on Hawkeye because when they launched that book, they put a lot of that stupid Kate Bishop, the better Hawkeye into like the promo stuff. And I hate that because I don't feel that way. And even if I did like the better, who says that? Like, even if I did feel that way as the writer of the Hawkeye book, which I intended to bring Clint into at one point. So why would I downgrade him before we're even doing that? Even if I felt that way, that's not a way to win people over. Yeah. yeah. Like, Kate, Kate would I, punch you for saying that. I, no right? Shit, or, I mean, that, right? that's, yeah, that's that. I did say that to the editor. I was like, why would we put this on here? Kate would never say this. Not seriously. Not to, not to people that she wanted to influence. Like, so I, I like I had a real problem with that. And there were people that not only refused to try our book, mm. but people who were like, I'll never read this writer. All for some solicit shit that I had nothing to do with. Yeah. It's and I of, just like Yeah. It's kind of like with newspapers, like the how the the article writer has no control over what the headline the headline is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah, yeah. You feel for a lot of that. There's a lot of that going around. And so, yeah, I, I, I felt very frustrated because my way of approaching this career is very much, you can live or die on whatever your last issue was. So like, let's always put in the work and like, try, try our best to get it right. I don't always nail it, but I'm always trying. And it comes from that. And, and it comes from watching the industry and individual fans be incredibly devoted but also incredibly fickle like their minds are changed very easily about things so i want to be like consistently great so that they have no reason to you know drum us out of the industry yeah yeah they, they want to be here a while. yeah i want people to want to see my take on things as long as i can you know make good stories yeah, yeah. i love that yeah. and i want you guys here for a while as well Thank yeah, I was going to say, I know I took us off track a bit, but I think that was interesting to hear. Same. And you hit on certain, I think you hit on some important points, notable points. Thanks. So I actually had some questions I gathered trying to at the shop yesterday with folks who had picked up Black Cloak, but I only got to see one person. <laughs> but <laughs> I did get a question submitted from somebody at my shop who was uh, one of the people who picked it up because, again, Kelly, he's like, I'm a huge fan, so... He was very, very excited to check it out, and uh, he was far from disappointed. But uh, Dylan from <laughs> my shop was uh, said, I kept finding myself reminded of classic detective fiction, uh, i.e. Chandler H- Hammett. Um, was this an influence? Also, the art somehow evokes Blade Runner for me. Another nod to, de- de- uh, to detective fiction and noir. And then they, he wrapped it up with, hope that passes the acid test. <laughs> Well, I'd say he's right on the money. Um, I mean, I love that he got Blade Runner vibes from it, even if he didn't read any of the solicits saying, you know, Blade Runner vibes. So that's great. Um, and for sure, Hammett, Chandler, um, you know, these are these are the 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 foundation on which we build our detective type of stories, you know, um, including Blade Runner. I mean, Black Cloak is 100 percent a hat tip nod to blade runner as a title like a blade runner is a 
detective or a sort of bounty hunter meets detective, right? So we're sort of homicide cops in this fantasy world, Black Cloak. So the Blade Runner of it all is very much there in the sci-fi and the neo-noir and the and the actual world building stuff. Um, I think all of those... I think his literature references are great and those are certainly a thing, but also I watched a lot of Rockford files last year. So, you know, (laughs) (laughs) detectives detectiving or PIs detecting. That's what we do in, uh, in the house of Kelly. (laughs) I love it. No, and see, it's fun because he was asking, he, he's the one who would ask about classic detective fiction too. He's the, uh, He's the well-read lad at the shop, that's for sure. So I was very happy. Of all people that I could get a question from, I I knew that Dylan would have something good for y'all. Well, and I love if those are his tastes, if he's vibing on on our book that's great that's that's yeah that's yeah, exactly that's the target kind of audience reader we want yeah exactly exactly well and i think it's funny <laughs> you mentioned you know he notices that it evokes blade runner form and i guarantee you he didn't read the solicitation because he forgot to order it himself he got it <laughs> off the wall he's like oh can't forget this um and i was like oh well there you go um but he's not the only person who i got a question from that mentions blade runner and something tells me it was another person who picked it up off the wall because this just they threw it in like this seems like there's definitely of it but they never none of those questions worded it as though they had read the solicitation that says blade runner meets saga yeah um, which yeah. i thought was interesting but the other question regarding that mentions blade runner and influences um which you kind of just tackled on was eric does hobbies it specifically asked um Said some influences of the story appear evident, Blade Runner among them, but he was just asking if there is any less obvious on your story and work. Well, I think one thing that we talked about between us, because we're really big fans of it, and I had already started writing this. I mean, the world building on this had begun some 10 years ago, and I I mm. think when I saw that, I can't remember what happened first, but when Meredith and I started talking about it, she said, have you seen Arcane? And I was like, oh my God. I was like, yes, because it's the best thing ever. I mean, we stumbled onto Arcane, um, my partner and I, just on Netflix. You know, I've never played League of Legends. I I know of it, but I try not to play too many video games because I have shit discipline and I would never get any writing (laughs) done. But um, I, you know, so... Uh, And I fell in love with that, Um, not just the animation style, which is incredibly beautiful and not, I feel like it takes influences from things, but it honestly feels a little different. It feels more like comics in a lot of ways. Like it looks to me like a comic that was ripped away, ripped out of the comic pages and put into a movie. I I love it or a TV show. Um, But yeah, I think there are pretty solid similarities to, to, to ours in a good way, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, about yeah, the no, kind was, of world building. Yeah. I was definitely taking notes from Arcane. Like, it's impossible not to. And you're like, somebody well, gives you this incredible gift. And I was like, ah. yeah. There was even something I pulled off of Meredith's. I think I pulled. You pulled uh, Arcane. It's a character. I, I pulled a League of Legends thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, he should look like this guy. Yeah. <laughs> like and not, then, and not at that knowing. Point you didn't know anything. Yeah. That. At that point I hadn't watched it. So I had no idea what she was referencing, but I was like, this vibe, this is totally the vibe. Like, I don't know what this is from that. You did this from it, from Meredith's own Instagram, her drawing of it. Huh? 
I was like, but like this guy is the energy of this character. And then sure enough, later I watched, I was like, is that that guy? And I went back digging through Meredith's Instagram and I'm like, oh my God, I just like what I like, man, because here was this thing that I'd picked out of hers of all the beautiful stuff on her Instagram. I had really honed in on this. And then sure enough, it shows up in this arcane, which turned out to be this incredibly emotional, well-crafted story about, you know, it's about sisters, but it's about good and evil. It's about class warfare. It's about a society trying to grow, but in really painful ways, the haves and the haves not. It's, it's great. It's honestly, truly excellent. I would recommend it to everyone. Um, and I sometimes you worry when you're like, Oh, are we being too much like a thing? But honestly, mm -hmm. if people think of us when they think of arcane, I do not have a problem with it. You know, that I, I love that actually, because that's a show that I've heard continuously, like amazing things about that series. And I have personally avoided it because I have never touched league of legends. I don't know anything about it. And I assumed uh, that there's simply yeah. no way I could enjoy it without that. But everyone I've heard talk about it, it's like, nah, I don't know what the hell that game is you're talking about. This is a show that's really good. I'm like, okay, well, then I guess I need to check yeah. it out. But uh, that review there Honestly, has... if you like Black Cloak, I would watch it this weekend. Yeah. The nice <laughs> no. thing about it is no I'm, not, I'm not a video game player either. Uh, I really suck at it. But um, I, I love the character designs and the lore at behind League of Legends, which is what brought me to the show. Uh, and and I was really pleased to see that they sort of, they looked at the the what had been established and then they looked at what they wanted to do and they're like, you should be able to enjoy this if you know nothing <laughs> about yeah, League of Legends. Yeah. That's no, really admirable. I like that. Because, yeah. I, I mean, I wonder about things like, um, you know, like there's, uh, Boom has the Magic the Gathering comics that come out. And That's true, yeah. we have people that order them and, you know, it was only a few months ago I finally heard somebody talking about those books to know how they were and they said that it was hands down their favorite like intellectual property based comic that was made out of something like a game like they said they thought it was better than the D&D &D books and all that and so it made me start thinking about you know I've dipped into magic and I think there's a lot of fascinating lore in it but you can't get that through playing the game Whereas, you know, same with like League of Legends, from what I know of that game, there's not some sort of driven emotional value to it. It's a bunch of bro dudes battling it out at midnight. <laughs> well, all that time. is that is not the show. Yeah. The it, show is and I've, super emotional. I've super. seen the trailer and the, like you said, the animation looks absolutely beautiful. It's just, again, one of those things, it was strictly the League of Legends. I was like, eh, yeah, I've never been exposed to it. I don't know that I want to get into it, so I'll it but i'm gonna have to add that to my list because um if it has any resemblance to this and it had any influence on this book i i'm right there with it that that's really cool i, I think it did i think it did have influence if only on uh, i think both meredith and i are such fans of it i think you know we we obviously don't want to hit similar plot beats or feel like we're aping right. it at all we want to do our own thing but i think you can definitely feel the love for that show like in sort of the DNA of what we're doing for sure. Mm -hmm. I love that. I mean, like, let me put it this way. Uh, if anyone ever adapts Black Cloak, like options it and adapts it, 
currently right now, my number one thing would be for the people who did Arcane and the animators to do it. Uh, They're I a think... really small outfit. And <laughs> I know. It took them a really long time, Kelly. Listen, we're talking about dreams, Meredith. <laughs> okay. We're talking about dreams, okay? Oh uh, I actually think it wouldn't make, it wouldn't be the best choice because we are similar to Arcane in some ways. It would probably, you know, just feel like yeah. too much, too much of the similar thing. But yeah. It, that would be a fantasy for sure would be that incredible team like bringing our world to animated life amazing that would i mean be a fantasy i can I, I can definitely st just from my ties in the animation world like um i know a lot of people when it first came out were basically like this is what you can get if you give animators like the time and resources to do like the mm, reason right, it's yeah. so good is it they let shows. it cook um yeah. and yeah. so and it we, shows if, yeah and it if shows. we could bring that to uh if somebody wanted to do something with the black cloak property like let i would hope that it becomes more practice to let these stories yeah. percolate yeah give them the time they need yeah. to really be done right yeah that brings up something that, uh, so you're talking about this idea of it being ad adapted and the dream would be for it to, you went straight to animation. And what I love about that is I am on team, why aren't there more animated indie comic adaptations? I feel like mm -hmm. it's it's just true, waiting yeah. to be done. Um, I think we've gotten, you know, I, I haven't watched Invincible because I, we, we don't need to get into that. But, um, you know, like something as uh impactful is simply the like four or five minute animated clip they did at the end of radiant black issue 15 oh yeah where they've got the cool. voice actor who does terry mcginnis for batman beyond and you know they put the time and care into it to say look this world can be something more and it can be animated where you're not having to make this giant blockbuster of a thing i think that mm. animation feels like the perfect way to adapt comics but that said i'm also kind of curious and a very lighter sillier question if you guys had a act any actors in mind for phaedra and pax were this to get put onto a big screen of some sorts Ooh, for me not really but i think that that's because one of the things when, when i knew we were doing a fantasy world like this sort of neo-noir fantasy world one of the things I said to Meredith early on was I hate it in fantasy stories where we're told it's this incredibly dispersed, diverse universe, but then we mostly just see humans with small tweaks, like humans with piercings or humans with mm. weird ears who are supposed yep. to be elves or, yeah. uh, and so I was like, I'd really like us to populate it you know, our two leads are going to have that a little bit, but I wanted to subvert the fairy thing in a very specific way, which I'm very happy with these sort of thick, stocky, shorter fairies that still have these like crazy gossamer wings, um, which I feel like is very anti stereotype of what you think of fairy, which is like very feminine and light and, you know, whatever ethereal. Um, and so I wanted to play with, reinventions like that but i also just wanted us to pull weird shit and i wanted to do that because i was sick of seeing the opposite those worlds didn't feel built out the way they promised when that kept happening but 
you are shooting yourself in the foot, <laughs> like immediately, as far as ad adaptation goes, right? Because it's very hard to imagine, unless we become a huge runaway success, like how do you do a live action version of this that's not have a huge budget, right? Because of all these creatures. And so I do tend to think my mind goes to animation just because that no longer is a problem then. I mean, we've got characters in here that are flaming skulls, you know, yeah. like, or, or flaming skeletons rather. Like, um, mm. so I think we made, there was a moment where I was like, should we not do this? And I was like, no, make the best original material we can and cross the adaptation bridge later you know yeah. it'll happen it's or it won't it's not our concern our concern is to make the best possible thing the best possible comic and i made an active choice i don't know if meredith did but i made an active choice to not let thinking about other stuff come into it like what's the best choice for this book this property alone and it was sometimes hard to do and we definitely made it harder for anyone that wants to come in and turn it into something else but i still think it was the right call for this book yeah it's um if you set out to do a comic like you should use the medium to its fullest advantage and exactly not, yeah uh not you shouldn't make a comic to hopefully make a movie later on exactly like, that, like it, it's like not a step in zone yeah. And yeah. I think there was a point in the process where I was trying to be like practical and professional about it and like, oh, let's be smart. But then I was like, no, that's backwards. Like the whole point is that we can with, you know, yes, yeah, some sweat equity from Meredith. Sure. But we can have a flaming skeleton guy who's drinking a drink and going, I hate black cloaks. Like we can do that because we're a comic book. And we and should take burns. advantage. Yeah, we <laughs> we should, yeah, we should take advantage of that and build the most beautiful thing we can and if someone else wants to come in later and do something that's their problem. Yeah. Like, <laughs> then they yeah. should make it for that medium. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. I genuinely so. couldn't think of a better response, ladies. That was everything I could have possibly hoped for because at the end of the day, I think that the thing that makes comics great is that they the best of them aren't very easy to adapt to anything else because True. they do exactly what you say. They make the most use of the medium. And you nailed on it from the start, Kelly. You, you, you look at something like Lord of the Rings and it's supposed to be this giant fantasy, but there's really only a few types of things that don't look like humans with tiny tweaks. Uh, well, and I would say that's one of the better examples, right? Exactly. Like an incredible budget, incredible effects, and pr a pretty good translation of what's in that book to the page but if that's the high bar like yeah it does it does show that a lot of these are lacking in like the sort of range they want to show of See, the and, creatures and, you, know? and you, you can feel that with this comic because when you open this book up i read it and i read a story that's like you know there's there's heart and there's soul in this book there's not a pitch for a movie studio or TV production company. Mm, yeah. I, I've read uh, far too many books recently that, you know, I get to the end and I'm like, was this anything other than a pitch to get like adapted into something? It feels like there wasn't any, any real soul in making this into a comic other than to say, Hey, here's a, an easy way for you to look at our idea to make it like, you know, more pitchable maybe. But I, uh, you know, I love that because I think that so many people would be like, you know, They'd sit there and they'd think on that question 
and they wouldn't have anything near as thoughtful and just like I, I wish you ladies could have seen me. I, I had rock fingers up the whole time you were talking and I was smiling like an <laughs> idiot because I'm like, yes, make the use of the medium, make comics unadaptable, do it. And and it brings me with joy because like I said, and if in a world where this hobby and has become just aggressively obsessed with the value of books monetarily. I feel like so many of these stories lose track of having any value on the interior. And, you know, you can feel it in a story like this where it doesn't feel like it's supposed to look like somebody else. You know, I, I, I've enjoyed a series or two where they use likeness in it. So it's like, oh, wow, this looks like they fully cast a movie. Um, that's cool. But it's it's a different it doesn't feel like a comic the same way then it feels like I'm reading a movie and that's fine. But with something like black cloak, it really does give you that full comic book experience because like I said, and you know, I don't have to have the print copy in front of me to have had the impact I told you I had with the flashback turn of issue two. Um, I know that I'll flip the physical page and it's going to be that, uh, that change of style side by side or on the other side of the page, whatever, wherever it lands in the print. And you know, that's something you can't land in a movie the same way. You can't land a lot of these things that this medium can do, um, be it through narration, be it through, um, like you're saying, character design. Um, and I think that's an absolutely amazing mentality to have when you're creating any kind of art to not see about like, you know, like I don't think that people are out here making the next big MCU movie, hoping that it gets adapted into a Marvel comic, you know, <laughs> that's just not the way it works. So I think it's fascinating that, you know, typically um, you, you'd get kind of responses where people might, might stumble on that and really think, you know, I actually do have this like set in stone of like who I think would fit into this role or who I kind of base him off of. And not to say that there's anything wrong with having some likeness or inspiration for your characters based on people that already exist or are even in the acting uh, career. But I, I do think there's just something more genuine about having these characters that look like themselves and nobody else. Um, even Phaedra has a, a distinguishing softness to her face that doesn't really, well, it, it's hard to explain really, because it, it actually leans into another question I had from, uh, the same person who had asked about the, the less obvious influences, Eric does hobbies. He was saying for Meredith, um, he just says, there's a notice, noticeable softness to your art, art style here. And he was asking if you can speak to what led to that choice. Um, um, I, I grew up on a lot of anime and that led to a strong love of animation. <laughs> and I thought that's where I was going to go in life before I realized that I, I want to draw something really well once <laughs> yeah. uh, um, uh, but as a result like there's a there's a cartooniness to my stuff uh that is definitely influenced by all of that um and i think that's what softens the edges uh you're uh you're reminding me of how i didn't become a storyboarder uh, because <laughs> i i both was like, I can't draw any of this shit. And also, why are people telling me what happens? I want to decide what happens. It's actually very interesting you mentioned that. I just saw uh, Daniel Warren Johnson, when someone Joe and I talk about quite a lot, he just posted that he had been doing storyboard work for uh, in a, the upcoming Zack Snyder flick, Rebel Moon or whatever. But I thought it was fascinating <laughs> to see somebody kind of crossing wow. into a different territory because 
to, uh, I haven't seen anybody typically post like, oh yeah, you know, I'm a comic book artist and writer by trade, but I'm also dipping into like, it kind of makes sense that storyboarding can come right out in line with comic book mm. stuff. So, um, I think it's kind of fascinating you mentioned that because I literally just saw that I think this morning. So I think there's a surprising number of people, especially if you have like favorite creators that you really love. And then all of a sudden you don't see them doing any books and you're like, oh, my God, what happened to them? And sometimes they're just off working on a new book and then it comes out in a year. But sometimes they've been grabbed by very smart production companies mm -hmm. to do character design, to do animation, to do. I mean, to design shoes, like, I mean, it's all sorts of crazy things that people recognize these artists are super talented yeah. and capable, especially with character design and costume and world building stuff. And also, I think most of those industries pay better on a more regular basis. Some of them you I mean, can even get health insurance and things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, well, listen, animation is very fraught. I'm not saying yeah. there aren't its own problems there, especially the writing side included. Like why yeah. animation writers aren't paid the same as writers of any other medium is or writers of any other television or film is shockingly annoying. But anyway, yes. uh that's a different podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of those a yeah. lot of those people, I mean, a lot of those people get pulled into stuff and you're like, oh, that's where they've been. Like it just happened with me. I'm getting to work with someone that I'm a big fan of that I've done a few things on and he's been really MIA for a while. And I just assumed he was working on a new book. And then I found out when they're like, yeah, he can do this 10 page thing. And I was like, well, maybe we should get him for more. And they're like, oh no, no, he's doing, you know, insert thing for yeah. animation, movie, whatever. Redacted. Like, he'll not, yeah. He'll not be coming back for a while. Yeah. And I'm like, ah, mm -hmm. I so was going to say, there's a lot of yeah. scurrying back and forth uh, between yes. the industries. Well, and I do think that in a in the, uh, I think <laughs> that's why comics sort of, I just love the, I just love them so much. And I just think, I just think you truly have to be passionate about them to, to, to work in this industry, especially as an artist, because it's a real grind and the, the rewards are great, but not that often are they monetarily great. Right. So, mm. you know, I, know, I think a lot of people do come back to comics, even after they get seduced away for, you know, whatever payday or work on this cool thing that you're interested in or like whatever, a lot of them drift back to comics. And I don't think that's just because they're looking for work. It's because they love it. It's, there's a very particular joy in making comics that is very appealing uh there's also i think for a lot of us you know there's a chance in comics much more so than being part of an animated show or doing designs for a thing you love with a comic you have a chance to really create more and really be the voice more i mean as much as i would like to try the experience of being in a tv show writing room for example um and i am interested in that but I, I am very aware that ev basically everything I've done are novels or comics where I was the primary writer. And that mm, means right, yeah. I'm getting my vision out. I mean, it, it's a collaborative vision. It's shared with whoever I'm working with, but I'm the, I'm the voice. I'm not a voice among a bunch of other voices in a writer's room. And I often wonder like, how would I handle that? Because while comics has a lot of downsides to it, it also really allows me to create 
a vision that I come to with a, with a partner that's really our own, you know, that doesn't have a lot of interference on black cloak more than anything I've ever done, because not only is this creator owned, but neither Substack nor image cares about or is in control of the content. So you're really getting out a story you want at that point, you know? And that's beautiful. It's also a lot of pressure because there's no one else to blame when it goes wrong. Mm-hmm. But, um, but you know, that's, that's not something a lot of industries allow you. Like when you're making a film, there are so many hands in that, you know, right, it's yeah. hard to say what was what you did and what was your vision and what was this collaboration. And that's beautiful too. I'm not trying to knock that. I just think I underestimate how much comics has allowed me to really be who I am and say who I am and talk about the things that are interested to me, interesting to me. Yeah, they definitely spoil you that way, like, yeah, in a good way. I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, I think it's part of why people come back, you know? Yeah. They're like, well, I could write this film and if I'm lucky, maybe someone buys it and then makes a really shitty version of a thing that I loved or maybe I should make it into a comic and I can really do it how I think it should be done and like create something that will really mean something to people and if I sold that script, maybe I'd make fifty to $100,000 and it would be way more cost effective, but it might never get made and nobody will fall in love with it when it's just a script that hasn't been made. But someone might fall in love with your graphic novel. It might change their life, you know? So that's it's powerful. That, it, no kidding. Um, and you, it, it's perfect. You bring up Substack and uh, it, I, I've not been able to really dive in too much um, to much Substack stuff, but we did have a question from somebody regarding Black Cloak and Substack, and I kind of want to start it with some of my own questions. Is um, Kind of what you're saying is that you get this creative control. I'm sure it's just as much that feeling you get versus writing Captain Marvel than writing this. Um, but when it comes to making that decision, okay, I have this story, I'm wanting to put this out into the world, and you know, I, I went back and I looked at it. it, it if uh, I, I found the right posting, it looks like chapter one of Black Cloak you guys published almost exactly, if not exactly, uh, about a year, uh, January to January, a year before issue one came to print. Um, and I guess my question would just be, you know, I, I have too many, frankly, but um, well, when it comes to this, like it, I, I see so many books start on Substack and move and this person's question in particular, they were mentioning, um, they were wondering if we can expect more black cloak content to continue via Substack as it comes to print and how long we can kind of plan to hang out in black cloak. Uh, they specify they're looking for a big creator own world a la saga. Um, and it seems like this could be it. That was a comic book layer on Instagram, but you know, it, uh, this whole thing, um, you know, putting it on Substack yourself, that has to have even more creative control than taking it to something like Image, right? Well, Image is really great. I mean, they're they're one of the only games in town to go to if you have a creator-owned project and you want to retain all your rights. Nice. Um, there are a couple other places you could get that deal, but it's not necessarily a given, whereas it is at Image. Similarly for Substack, I mean, basically the long and short of Substack is I was given a grant and the only real requirement, I mean, yes, they wanted me to make comics with that money, but the only real requirement was X number of posts within X amount of time. And then I was able to, so I wanted to make comics with that money. That's what I that's what they wanted me to do with it. And that's what I wanted to do with it. And they didn't want any of the rights. They didn't want to control any of the content. 
So it was beautiful. I mean, it was the greatest gift I've ever been given in comics, 100%. Uh, I don't know if I'll ever be given that kind of money and free reign ever again. And so I'm very glad that Black Cloak and the Call are turning out really well. And I'm very proud of them because maybe it'll be my only shot. I don't know. Um, but I think how the subsec of it all has actually gone is more of a, whew, that's more nuanced. Um, I think that none of it, I, I think I bit off way more than I could chew, basically. I mean, I was still trying to maintain a reasonable balance with my Marvel work and my sort of big two work. And then also launching two or three creator-owned books, which I've never done before. Uh, I've only done sort of, I did the creator-owned book Meredith and I did together, but that was with an editor and Dark Horse was very involved. It was a whole different process. It was also almost 10 years ago. Um, and then I did Mega Princess, which was sort of half creator-owned. It's like a co-own with Boom. And again, they were just really involved, but on Black Cloak, it was really all on me as far as organizing it all and making it all happen and everything. And doing that with two creator-owned books was a lot, you know? So um, I think we definitely, me primarily, like made some mistakes and fell down a little bit as far as delays go and things like that. It was very hard to keep it all running. At some points, it was very overwhelming. I thought I was going to have more help negotiating the print stuff and that didn't really work out that way which is fine but you know these things happen like you just gotta take each challenge as they come and try and try and uh I don't, I don't know try to try to overcome so I guess that's all to say the subsec of it all we've built an incredible audience I'm really happy with how that's gone overall I wish we hadn't been running so late and that's mostly on me uh, just trying to deal with juggling everything. Um, but the hardcore answers are um, we're working on issue five now. Uh, the the mystery of it all, quote unquote, wraps up in arc six or in issue six, which is the end of the arc. Although for those people, you know, who like to who like a big thick trade, it'll probably be page count wise um, more like closer to eight issues because of the oversized uh, pages. Um, that ends the mystery of this murder element of the story, this first one. And, but it's sort of, you know, it's a pretty big finale. There are pretty big consequences of this. And so what that spins us out to is something a little different, but similar. Uh, but I honestly, I think, you know, I understand that person who asked that question says, I'd love a big, long lasting saga. And I mean, we, we'd love to do that, yes. but to do that, you need saga sales. Like, you know, you, you can't go 50, hundred issues and have hiatuses that last for more than a year and things like that. And I'm not criticizing them. I think it's brilliant. I love that Fiona Staples has drawn every single issue of that. I think that's the right call for that book, but that's an incredible success story. So I think it's a little naive for us to be like, oh yeah, that's totally going to happen to us. I mean, right. I've mm. seen our numbers, our first numbers for the first issue and they're good. I think they're great but I don't know that they're, we can go on forever numbers. So 
like I think we have to see where we settle for our issue two numbers and we'll have a better sense of of how much road we've bought ourselves. Um, I definitely want to do more. I think Meredith wants to do more. Definitely. I think the good news for anyone who's reading is thanks to Substack, we are ahead. There shouldn't be any delays. The six issues will be oversized yes. and figures out very cool. Um, for print, you know, people on the Substack side have seen delays because we've had some problems. But for print, we were far enough ahead that it should be it should be seamless. So um, I think that's <laughs> I talked for a really long time. I think I answered everything, but maybe they're not all good answers. I don't know. It's a I, little mixed. I think you provided excellent insight into that question just because, I mean, like I said, for me, I don't use Substack. So it's a question I was kind of curious about. I didn't realize that Black Cloak started there until this question came in yesterday. Um, so then seeing that, I was like, okay, well, that's interesting. And um, again, as, as an aspiring writer myself, I've just been kind of curious about the process that comes into play when you're moving something from Substack into print. And I see you're talking, you know, you're not going to have to face the delays now because you've already been publishing it online and through Substack. So you've been working on it as it goes and getting it out there. Um, and I'm sure that there's got to be steps to transition it to print. I don't know how involved, you know, an editor or image gets involved in the transition from Substack to image. But I, I think that your answers, you know, it's a tricky question to answer. Um, yeah, I mean, image has been incredible. Image has been incredible. I just, you know, there's a, there's a time when a writer's a writer and there's a time when a writer has become an editor, a PR person, right, a manager, yeah, yeah. a bookkeeper, uh, you know, a proofreader uh, and it's too much. And the print stuff was really intense, but again, doing it earlier allowed our sort of allowed that to happen. Unfortunately, I have burned a lot of our extra runtime we had because I've been so swamped with dealing with the launch and all the print stuff. Right. Um, Meredith's been sort of very patiently waiting, but we're still well ahead and we're good. So people should be confident that there's not going to be any hiccups with the book, you know, barring true disaster. Right. Um, but <laughs> yeah, just jinxed us horribly there. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's an uncomfortable question to have to say mm. to fans who love it. Well, I don't know if we're going to do more. It tends how much money we make, but that's the plain reality. I mean, right. um, mm. Substack bought us the runway to do this first bit, but you know, it's not an infinite runway. So, it, and, and honestly, like I, greatly respect indie people who make comics, you know, and who, and who are passionate about them and still put it in every month for books that are sort of barely skating by. But, you know, part of me is also like, if, if this can't sustain itself, I don't want to force it either. You know what I mean? Like, Oh, absolutely. If there's the demand yeah. for it and it can be financially viable for both of us, then this is what I want to do. But okay. I think that question is really up to the fans at this point, and we'll see. So, and Hopefully, like said, we've I, done our jobs well and right, and and the market will decide our fate. <laughs> right. Well, and no, I, I like I said, I think that's very valuable insight for the audience to have because, I mean, as readers, we don't really see all that stuff. I know that I've personally been seeing some more creators being transparent with both pay, you know, sales numbers, stuff like that, to kind of you know, nab at that very irritable question of like, how long is this series going to run? How long is this going to go? How long can I stick around with these characters? You know, as much as we all want to know that it, 
I can only imagine it gets taxing whenever you're like, yeah, it would be really cool if that excitement showed on the numbers end where it needs to be showing for mm. this to keep happening. Yes. But um, yeah. sheer enthusiasm doesn't, you know, pay for a second, third, fourth, fifth arc or all that. Yeah. Um, yeah and just to be clear, I think our issue one numbers were really good. It's right. Certainly. It's certainly much better than I had hoped for or sort of expected maybe would be the better word. But that doesn't mean it's enough to do six more issues. You know what I mean? Like, it, so it's just literally like a Excel spreadsheet kind of a question now, you know, like, let's look at where we're at. And again, I think the, the first issue numbers tell you a lot, but there's also a lot to learn in the issue two numbers when you see what your attrition is. Yep. Um, so mm. that's that I think we'll know that next week uh, a little bit. So I'm hoping that'll give us a little bit of clarity. Um, that'll be awesome. And yeah. Jill, I'm down to my one last like fun question. <laughs> and I don't have anything else scripted after that, but I had one that I thought would be fun if Joe didn't have anything else to throw in first. I'm happy to go, but I do, we do have to start wrapping up a little bit. And it's, I've got something coming totally. up. So yeah, sorry, that's fine. I just wanted to ask quickly. I noticed Becca Carey is the letter for this. I hadn't really noticed her work before I discovered it on Radiant Black and all the massive verse titles, but was there anything in particular, again, sorry, just quickly, that you uh, gave her in terms of direction or when you were like defining like, any of the fonts or was, was that just all um, Becca's uh, ideas and everything? My cat is freaking out. Um, this was the first time I ever really got to do that. I mean, that's not true because Meredith and I did do this a little bit on Heart in a Box. Um, mm. But we barely so long touched ago, on it, though. But, but it gave us so many more options. Yeah, it was so long ago. And also it was my first project and the editor and Dark Horse were much more involved. So it felt like you were giving your opinion, but you weren't necessarily deciding. But it was honestly very fun for me when Becca started coming up with the lettering option. Right, yeah. I... I've never gotten to really be part of that process that way. And I loved it. I don't know. Was it like that for you, Meredith? I did. I really enjoyed it. Um, it sort of surprised me how strongly I could feel about one like set of text right? bubbles over another. Yes. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I was shocked how much of a difference it made. And I have to say, I don't remember all of our choices or like, you know, we definitely made the right choices or whatever. But when I look at our book, I feel like we did. Yeah. I really like the lettering in our book. Becca's incredible. She's also really, um, in addition to lettering, she does a lot of design work and, and cool stuff like that. I had initially, when my eyes were very big, when I was first getting the subset money and I was forgetting that everything always costs more than you think it will. I had wanted her to design some cool world building stuff for us because she's a really terrific designer. But yeah, I think, um, I think it's really difficult to, we asked a lot of her like, Hey, it's a detective procedural, but it's also a fantasy world in mm. the future. Yeah. And um, you have to kind of mix all those sensibilities in just text. Like, how are you going to do that? And then it's not as prevalent in the first issue. I think you only see it in like the mermaid speak, but at, well, you also see it in the way we use those earphones and things, but there's a lot of little stuff where she's having to change, hey, this creature speaks in a different color font or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like she's having to do a lot of that stuff. It's a lot of work, but I think it's a another really big part of the world building. 
Is it Clyde? It's another really big. Arc. Oh my God. They are fighting like crazy. We knew it would they happen. They are losing their minds. I, I mean, I oh, even man. tried the trick of the laser pointer and he is just not having it. He's been such a dick. Oh. Leave your brother alone. <laughs> Uh, sorry. No, you're <laughs> totally um, so yeah, I think Becca, yeah, was a re- Becca was a really big part of that world building. I feel um, because you know it's like if you're creating something, you can't. There can't be like a whatever. It's the old saying: you're only strong as your weakest link, right? So there can't be something when you're trying to build something comprehensive. There can't all of a sudden be something that feels like a wrong note, you know? And if you have the wrong lettering, it's a wrong note. And you feel it as as a reader, I think. And so it's a huge part of all of that, putting that all together. Yeah, because one thing I noticed was the location. Oh, uh, I love like those. Text. Yeah, yeah. Like, like right? every time there was a new scene on the location, there was like saying what it was and like the numbers yeah. and like 1.01. 1. Yes, her fun. location tags are one of my favorite things. And I think it's just one of those really subtle ways in which she made it feel more sci-fi. Like yes, that exactly. Feel- feels a little bit procedural but it feels even more sci-fi than procedural which i think is perfect i love it i think when she sent that in i was like oh my god no notes this is perfect we're doing this like i don't even want to hear anyone else's opinion like this i'm in love with this i loved it (laughs) yeah because the font is very like clean and i don't it it has that very sort of like sci-fi feel to it like you say yeah sorry did you have something to mention latterly uh, I just had my final little like funzy wrap up question. If we're on to that now, let's do it. Yeah, right on. So, uh, jumping back to the very first page of uh, issue one, uh, Kiros is stated as the last city in the known world and is filled with uh, such a diverse cast of characters, uh, ranging from seemingly just standard issue humans to some very hungry mermaids um, that have all been brought together after the fear of this great evil and you start the issue by saying that without that common evil it's a fucking mess um so for this question it's simply what kind of messy things could one expect to see on a typical daily news headlining <laughs> um uh local troll arrested <laughs> for uh blood vengeance spell after <laughs> Oh, uh, after unicorns trample uh, dangerous local religious, you know, flowers or something. I, you know, like that's the idea. Like they don't get yeah. along and they weren't necessarily supposed to. I mean, I like the idea of found families and disseparate and diverse creatures and cultures coming together. I'm an American. I love the melting pot, right? Like I'm into it. I think it's cool. But I also think you can't just put a bunch of disparate communities into one city and be like, oh, it'll be fine. And, yeah. and just just elves will be mostly in charge. Like, no. Like, so I think, yeah, it, it would be about um, one of the things that comes that gets discussed, but hopefully organically comes to a head if we've done our jobs right, is the push and pull between magic and technology. Like this is a city, mm. this is a city in a world that has technology, but it's clearly leaning more on magic. And while technology has downsides too, in my opinion, magic as an idea is less sustainable. And so this is a city that's sort of gone all in on magic, but we've already seeded stuff about that that's not going 
perfectly because they've got these brownouts that happen in the second issue. I think you see that. Yes. Where, where uh, obviously they're trying to conserve power in some way. And like, again, we don't say why that's happening or we don't say what, but it's definitely a clue that's there to tell you, Hey, maybe everything isn't super great here, even for, you know, the, already the ruling pretty class. bad. Yeah, yeah. And like, what is going to push it over? And then if you push it over, what happens? Mm -hmm. So um, I think, yeah, I don't remember the question, but you landed it. You answered the question at the very beginning. It was just simply asking for a a fun, messy headline to kind of sum up what's possible in this world. I think that's a great pitch point for people is that that little headline you gave of just pure, this can be anything and everything happening together. I think so far well, think, my favorite characters have been the mermaids character designs. I think they're absolutely yeah. wonderful. And I, I, especially in the second issue as we get to kind of learn more about them as creatures and their role in this uh, area. Um, it just, I was like, you know, what? I wonder what kind of crazy nonsense happens whenever I was rereading and it said, uh, you know, pe- there's still assholes. People still don't like each other <laughs> and it's a fucking. Well, and I, yeah. And I think the example I gave not to beat it into the ground, but I think that's also an example a decent example, if off the cuff, of why the Black Cloaks and the Kiros Police Department are not respect, like that they're feared and that people, people are just not used to law and order here yet. Like that isn't, they're used to blood vengeance spells and magic and, you know, Hmm. oh, I murdered their family on the wedding night because that's what we did in the old days or, you know, whatever. Like they're still trying to operate with these old sort of cultural norms and like not sure that they think law and order is a great idea. And they're not wrong. If elves are in charge, that feels like that's going to be a systemic problem if you're creating your police force when only one sort of ruling class is sort of making the rules. So I, I think that they're pushing against all the things that any civilization that's trying to work together are dealing with. And it's not going great. <laughs> I love it. Well, that was, I think the perfect little wrap up question there. Um, yeah, and, thank uh, you guys so much for having us. Thank yes. you. No, yeah. Thank you for being here. I know we, I know we talked for quite a while, but I really appreciate, I know we both really appreciate the time you've given us. Cause I think it, it I think I hopefully speak for everyone when I say it's been an amazing and fascinating discussion. And I think we covered a wide range of topics and things. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I was happy to be here. Yeah, we had a great time. I'm sorry to cut it short, but we've got to move on to the next now. No worries. (laughs) Long list Yeah, it's more than enough. (laughs) All right, guys. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time, ladies. Have a great rest of your day and uh, look forward to more Black Cloak. Yeah, take care. Thank you. Bye. 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 Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for on this episode. I want to thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review the show five stars wherever you're listening. I would really appreciate it. If you want to keep up to date on new episodes, please subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can email the show at jtalkscomics at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter at JoeTalksComics. And finally, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at JoeLovesComics, where we can continue talking comics. That's all for now, and I hope to see you next time. Bye!